0: Hello, everyone. I'm AJ McKeon, the producer of the OnTick Protective Intelligence podcast. Before we begin this episode, I wanted to take a quick moment to talk about recording quality. Due to the remote nature of these recordings, our audio quality may vary. We are working on a solution and appreciate your understanding. Thank you for listening, and now on to the podcast. Welcome to the OnTech Protective Intelligence Podcast. I'm Fred Burton, the Executive Director of the OnTech Center for Protective Intelligence. During my years as a counterterrorism agent with the U.S. State Department and time spent as a physical security expert in the private sector, I've seen it all and met many fascinating people along the way. This podcast series explores the riveting world of protective intelligence through conversations with leaders in the security field. I'm Fred Burton, and now on to the podcast. Today, I'm speaking with Dr. William H. Reed, author of A Dark Night in Aurora, Inside James Holmes and the Colorado Mass Shootings. Welcome to the OnTIC Protective Intelligence Podcast, Dr. Reed. Thank you, Fred. I'm delighted
1: to be here. Appreciate you inviting me.
0: I have to say, Bill, when I read A Dark Night in Aurora, It's probably the best book that I have read on the mind of an active shooter. So you did a great job in putting this story
1: together. You are very kind. I appreciate that so much. Tell me a little bit about what is a forensic psychiatrist? What I usually say in court is that it's a psychiatrist who works in some way at the interface of mental health and the law. Some work with the civil law and things like malpractice lawsuits. I do that sometimes. Others work with the criminal law in criminal matters in which the mental health of a defendant or an arrestee is being investigated. And there are other subspecialties as well. How did you get into this business? I was just a poor, humble shrink in Santa Fe, New Mexico, and lawyers kind of started calling for a little help with their cases, occasionally a judge. As I continued in a psychiatric career in academia and, and running a couple of uh, large mental health organizations, those calls came more and more frequently, and they were very interesting. I enjoy working with lawyers. Maybe I'm the only doctor in the world who does, <laughs> but they're they're generally uh, of a stripe very different from me. And I enjoy working with both lawyers and judges. So at most points in my career, later on, it became about half of my practice. That's amazing. Now, Bill, let's go back to
0: July twentieth, twenty twelve. Uh, James Holmes. Kills 12, wounds 58. How did you get involved in the case?
1: Sometime after the shootings, I got a call from a judge's office, Judge Samur in Colorado, asking if I would consider becoming an expert for the judge, not for either side, but for the judge. The call actually was an invitation for me to be further vetted for that position. I'm aware now that a colleague in New York gave my name, maybe some other people did, and I appreciated that. The state of Colorado vetted me appropriately, and I went to work for the judge to assess Mr. Holmes, assess the situation, again, at the interface of mental health and law regarding what at that time, and still is, a very important criminal case. I will add that I'm not the first. I'm not the only one there. Dr. Jeffrey Metzner was the first judge's expert in the case for a variety of legal reasons and some legal wrangling. Uh, the judge appointed a second expert uh, with absolutely no qualms about Dr. Metzner. I was just the second guy to uh, to be appointed. Bill, you spoke to Holmes for,
0: I believe it was, uh, nine interviews and almost 23 hours. And I know just from my experience in talking to suspects that it's very unique, it's very interesting, and at times it's a very difficult job to do. In Looking at Holmes, what were some of your impressions from a psychiatric perspective as to his mindset?
1: That's the $64 question, of course. I saw Holmes, as you say, nine times. Some of those were at a secure hospital where I asked that he be transported so that I could interview him in a less correctional setting. Some of those were at the Arapahoe County Detention Facility where we met in a a much less comfortable setting. I saw him about two years after the shootings, and that's important to note, so that I saw a man who was far removed from the events and who had had some psychiatric medication and was not necessarily the way he looked after the shootings. What I saw was a fellow who, whose hair had now changed from the fiery red that he had dyed it before the shootings. He was fairly relaxed with me. He talked logically, but haltingly, and there are examples of that video in lots of places on the internet. He, as I say, talked logically without appearing to be crazy in the way that most people think of of crazy. As I say, he had been medicated with some medications that are designed to decrease psychosis or craziness, and that's, that's the way I saw him. He was not particularly depressed. He wasn't particularly nervous or anxious. He, in general, looked me in the eye. When I meet with people, I sit across from them, with usually nothing between us. The biggest thing one would notice was that his affect, that is his emotions that are shown through his face and his voice, were blunted. Initially, most of the answers were very short, and I had to kind of pull information out of him. As we talked over time, that became less an issue, but still, one had to pull the information out. Once you did that, I think he was extraordinarily open with me and maybe in some ways didn't really care about what the outcome of a future trial might be.
0: That's fascinating. Uh, You have described Holmes as very intelligent and a highly organized murderer. What do you mean by that, Bill?
1: First of all, there's no question that he was smart. He had extraordinary grades in high school and college, was accepted at Couple of high class neuroscience programs for graduate school, and people had great, great hopes for him. He could have been a terrific guy and done a lot of good for the world. As he approached the shootings, which the defense attorneys wanted to portray as crazy, in fact, they were very organized preparations. He, according to both what he said and what he wrote in a sort of a journal that some people call his notebook, checked out the venue. Looked at the pros and cons of theaters versus airports, for example. Looked at several different theater auditoriums. Ordered his materiel, his his ammunition, his his weapons, etc., piecemeal, so that it wouldn't be noticed particularly. Did all these things with a very focused goal. That's the best I can. That's the best I can say about his organization. One of the things one looks for in a person who is Mentally not responsible for his behavior, who is kind of crazy when he does it, is a lack of that kind of organization and planning and focus. That was that lack was not there in James Holmes. I'm not saying he wasn't very mentally ill. He was, and almost certainly still is.
0: You know, Bill, in every assassination case or investigation that I've been involved with or looked into, there is a very specific attack cycle that is followed. That is evident and you can deconstruct and there's a pre-operational surveillance phase. How long do you think Holmes had been planning or conducting surveillance of his targets in this case? Was it weeks or months?
1: It was at least weeks and probably months, particularly if you consider two or three months, months. And by the way, I, I know of your extraordinary background in these kinds of things. He Was moving in this direction, probably off and on for years, the focus began to develop probably about six months before the actual events. The choice of the venue probably occurred two to three months before the events. He bought his first weapon several months before the events and then bought others over the course of that period.
0: Bill, when he conducted his reconnaissance, what we would call pre-operational surveillance, You mentioned he looked at airports. Obviously, he looked at theaters. Did you find any other target sets that he might have considered? And why did he not choose to do this at the airport?
1: He thought very rationally about it, in my view. He did not want to be stopped or killed before he had killed lots of people. He thought about bombs. He chose theater because of the control he could exercise over the victim population. It's a closed room. He initially planned to put chain, handcuffs actually, around the one of the sets of exit doors to keep the people in the killing area. He, in some ways, herded them to one side of the theater uh, so that, A, they couldn't escape easily, and, B, they were easier to shoot. Bill, when
0: you're talking to him about this course of action, What is going through his mind, or did he say what he was thinking when he was sitting there, just opening up on this innocent crowd in this theater?
1: He used the word autopilot, and you and I hear that from time to time. And people, once the event has started, he called the event his mission. He frequently talked about being on autopilot. For example, just before he entered the theater, uh, he called a mental health hotline. When he couldn't make contact with that hotline and opened the car door in a darkened parking lot behind the theater, his phrase was, the mission had begun, it was almost unstoppable before, and now it was, in his mind, unstoppable. When he went in through the front door of the theater, got his ticket, and went into the auditorium, it's quite clear that he had a plan when he opened the car door and went in through the exit door of the theater that he had already propped open so he could re-enter the theater. He was on autopilot, particularly once he started shooting. He began with a 12-gauge shotgun, and he remembers things about those events. And it's clear that he wasn't some automaton who was in a trance. He remembers what he heard, what he saw, and that's very consistent with the other reports of what happened. But he describes himself as being on autopilot until His M&P-15, which is similar to an AR-15, as you know, his M&P-15 jammed. He didn't know how to unjam it and decided that the mission was over and then simply walked out of the theater and sat down in his car.
0: Bill, when he's describing these events to you, such as being on autopilot, what are your thinking as a psychiatrist about his mindset at that moment? What are you looking for?
1: I'm looking for evidence that his thinking was crazy during the, the event. Because one starts with the assumption that it's not crazy. And you look for evidence that may indicate that he's not mentally responsible in some way for his actions. I'm not finding those as I talk with him. As I sit with him some two years later, he is calm as he describes it. Matter of fact, there is very little emotion in it. He's not completely emotionless. There's inflection in his voice but there is not anger. There is not particular remorse. He's telling a story.
0: We'll get back to the conversation in just a moment. But first, I wanted to tell you a little about ONTIC Center for Protective Intelligence. In the world of protective intelligence, we know that gathering and sharing information is crucial. That is why we created the ONTIC Center for Protective Intelligence. We are regularly sharing strategies and best practices, insights, lessons learned from current and historical trends, as well as lessons learned from physical security experts like you. To find blogs, podcasts, webinars, white papers, and more, check out the center by visiting ontechai slash center. That's ontechai slash center. And I was prepping for this interview, and I saw that uh, you made a comment uh, to one of your, uh, in one of your, your talk shows that you were on that you did not think that he was psychotic. What do you mean by that?
1: The thing that the defense wants to show the jury is that by reason of mental illness, he didn't know what he was doing or he didn't know what he was doing was wrong. That's speaking generally in all states. In psychiatry, we translate that into psychotic. In the law, the phrase is criminally insane. Psychiatrists don't use the word insane, but the law does. So was his contact with reality adequate to let him understand what he was doing? And did he understand that it was wrong? That's what I'm looking for as I wonder about whether psychosis is there. Now, not all people who are a little bit out of contact with reality are non-responsible for their acts. But that's what I look for.
0: When you think about the mindset of an individual like this, we are in the protection business. I've spent my career trying to prevent these kinds of attacks from occurring. There's so many soft targets, Bill, and you think about this frightening ordeal that transpired in Aurora. What could have been done, if anything, in retrospect, to stop this from occurring?
1: You've asked the the main question, and I wish I had a good answer. I'm not saying that so that everybody will stop listening, because there are answers. But to think that something was wrong with, quote, the system, or with the psychiatrist who saw him a few weeks before, or with law enforcement, or with theater, is simply wrong. It is in my view, as a non-law enforcement person, virtually impossible to stop these very rare, almost random, almost always hidden plans and events from, from taking place. We try target hardening. You know what that is better than I do. We have police officers in schools. We have metal detectors in schools and at airports, things like that. We can ratchet down forever and make life very difficult for the other 350 million people in the U.S., that still will not protect us from everybody. Federal, state, and local law enforcement make the best decision they can about finding, recognizing, surveilling potential perpetrators. They help different organizations, public and private, with target hardening and awareness. Psychiatrists do the best they can with regard to assessing risk. Of violence. We can't predict violence, but assessing risk of violence in the very few seriously mentally ill people that we see who are at significant risk for violence. That's very few, unless they're doing meth or some some, uh, serious drugs, and then all bets are off. All those things happening simply will not eliminate these events. Will it cut down on some? Very likely so. And as you and I have discussed before, the Proper folks to do the lion's share of this reside in law enforcement in places like the FBI that does a lot of training of local law enforcement The various measures that I just mentioned. Bill, why do you think he called the
0: hotline, the psychiatric hotline, before he went into the theater? Was that an outcry on his part?
1: A part of everybody, in my view, who does this, except for the real antisocial psychopath. And when I say psychopath, I mean a very antisocial person of which Holmes was not one. A part of folks doesn't want to do it. Another part does want to do it. That's true of people who commit suicide or think about suicide. It's true of people who do lots of things. Holmes himself describes a part of him that wanted not to do the mission. When he was sitting in the car and had the mental health hotline uh, and dialed it, And the line was open for some nine seconds, but nobody appeared to have answered. He was wondering, and I wondered with him, whether somebody would be able to strengthen the part of him that didn't want to do it. His conclusion on that is that the, the call probably wouldn't have made any difference if someone had answered. I don't know that, but his view was that the part of him that wanted to, in his words, complete the mission was already overwhelming. He used a phrase, Some days earlier in talking with a girl named Hillary about his uh, his mission and scared her to death, he said, the floodgates are open, meaning that nothing was going to stop it. So, Bill,
0: as you walk back the cat and look at his pre-incident behaviors leading up to that night, what are some of the red flags that perhaps jump out at you from a psychiatric perspective?
1: If we do it completely with the retrospectoscope, that is looking back and unable to change anything, but knowing what we know now. He was ordering weapons, for goodness sake. He was ordering weapons that are that have no other purpose except aggressive behavior. And I don't mean the sportster, I don't mean the target enthusiast. I'm talking about someone who orders four fairly tactical weapons thousands and thousands of rounds of ammunition, and that's the big deal, thousands and thousands of uh, of rounds of ammunition, who plans to set up a distracting, uh, incendiary holocaust in his apartment. Those are clearly red flags, but nobody knew him. He was ordering from legitimate sources. He was entitled to order those things. Uh, He ordered from more than one source. People sometimes talk about red flags to the psychiatrist, I know both of the psychiatrists that he saw. I've met them since, one of them fairly well. I am convinced that neither one could have known anywhere near what he was planning, and neither one was able, legally or ethically, to stop him or put him in the hospital against his will. Did he need hospitalization? Did they recommend hospitalization? They didn't recommend it, but I think they would have. He would have refused. The law itself would have said This man is not committable, that is, is not hospitalizable against his will by law, and he would have gone on his way. The red flags we can see in retrospect are great. They were not visible to anyone until he showed up at the theater.
0: Bill, after spending the 23 hours with him, what did you take away from an overall assessment pertaining to the shooter?
1: That he had ideas that were very unusual and dangerous. But those ideas, although some people might call them disconnected from reality, and I might at times, those ideas did not interfere with his ability to understand what he was doing, to understand that he had done it in the wrong, that he was in the wrong, from both an ethical or moral and a societal and and a legal viewpoint. Those are important questions for the judge and for the jury. I came away thinking that at least as I saw him for 23 hours, two, two years after it happened, he was not an unlikable person, not somebody I would make friends with. But he didn't give you the willies. He didn't uh, come across as angry or as ominous. By that time, it was matter of fact. And although the 80 or 85,000 pages of stuff I reviewed and pictures and videos and interviews did give me the willies. He himself was not somebody that was frightening to me. I got to follow that up because I asked him, but the judge did not allow it to court. If you had the opportunity, would you kill somebody else? His answer was, I'm paraphrasing, probably, And here's the reasoning. His view was that he got a point for every person that he killed. So he kills 12, he gets 12 points. Those points don't give him any special privilege or any special strength, but he's got 12 points. His view in one of the interviews or his statement in one of the interviews was, now I'm remembering the context, I asked, should people be worried about you? And he said, probably so. I doubt that he will kill anyone else. I very much doubt that he'll ever have the opportunity, but there you go. And that was his motive. His motive was threefold. What I just described, you're right was about forty five percent of the motive, and by the way, we did reduce it to percentages, at least as he was describing it two years later and it made sense to me part of it was the idea that you kill other people, you get a point, and it's good to have points and they wouldn't mind he didn't really say they wouldn't mind being killed as a matter of fact, he said they would mind being killed, but life is not particularly valuable anyway why shouldn't I kill them another forty five percent was the odd idea that he was very depressed and killing people would make him less depressed and somehow prevent him from committing suicide he had never particularly thought about suicide before the killings by the way. this is just what he said was in his unconscious mind and hidden from him, but that was that was the way it was. The fact is, for you and I and for James Holmes, the unconscious mind truly is unconscious, and we talked about whether it was right or not, to trade people's lives for the possibility that you might be less depressed after killing them. He hemmed and hawed about that. He waffled a lot, but then agreed that that's really not a fair trade. The third piece, give or take 10% of his motivation, was the one that was most relevant to the prosecution. If you kill out of anger or out of hatred, then you get prosecuted for that, even if you're mentally ill. If anger and hatred pop up within your mental illness. You're very unlikely, in Colorado at least, to be found not guilty by reason of insanity. So we spent a good deal of time on that. He allowed that maybe it was 10%. Uh, He did hate people sometimes, but he hated them the way you hate vegetables, uh, the way you hate broccoli, not a vehement hatred and wanting to go kill him. He had had, since age 10, visions or daydreams occasionally of bombs going off. As he moved into adolescence, those very occasional pictures in his mind became more common, particularly when he was being confronted by someone and he would kind of freeze. He wouldn't argue much with people, but he would kind of freeze and these images of bombs going off would come into his mind. It wasn't until graduate school, I believe, that he began to recognize that those bombs going off had to do with him doing something, with him Hurting other people or or overcoming the situation.
0: Bill, in all the investigations I've done and the books that I've put together on various cases, there's usually things that surprise me when I am putting these stories together. When you were putting together a dark night in Aurora, what surprised you in thinking about this case? One of them was personal,
1: uh, and I'll I'll go over it very quickly. That was something that you may have experienced. I know that a lot of our colleagues in both law enforcement and mental health had happened. That was that the process of both being immersed in the case for a year when it was active and writing the book for over a year, that reactivated everything. The karma got to me. I wasn't feeling good. And my wife looked at me and said, it's the karma, Bill. We've got to put this down for a week. She was absolutely right. It helped me to understand the responses and, and the stress and the PTSD, if you will, of military law enforcement uh, that do particular jobs that need to be done. And we're glad they do them, but they have their their consequences and their ramifications for those who do them. With regard to Holmes, one of the things that I, I keep saying and I don't want to be misunderstood is the humanness of James Holmes. He is not some fantasy character. He is not a video game character. He's not a villain in a superhero movie. He's a real human being, one who did some very, very bad things, but he's still a human being. Another thing that comes to mind and that I tried to clarify in the book is that his parents had absolutely nothing to do with this. There were trolls on the internet that criticized them. Uh, They got hate mail, all kinds of things like that. They had nothing to do with this. They were perfectly reasonable parents, perfectly normal parents. They were far better than most parents, in my view. Uh, And they absolutely do not deserve the criticisms or the bad feelings that some have about them. Arlene Holmes wrote a very nice book about, uh, kind of a book of thoughts about these things. She even got criticized for the book. All the profits or all the proceeds, period, from the book do not go to her, they go to charity. So those two parents deserve uh, a lot of our support, as do, of course, the victims. One of the things that comes to mind instantly is the 12 people who were killed, the 58 or so people who were physically wounded, the other 400 or the other 350 in the auditorium who went through absolutely horrible situations, some of them watching loved ones die before their eyes. The first responders, uh, one of them described in the book, listened to the blood sloshing around on his floorboards as he was transporting wounded to emergency rooms around the city. Those guys and women were enormously affected. There are other victims in the community, in the auditorium of the theater next door. They're victims too. The whole country's a victim in terms of all these mass murders and and shootings. But that's what comes to my mind.
0: No, I thank you for that. And I also want to thank Dr. Reed for joining us today. Bill, where can listeners find A Dark
1: Night in Aurora? I appreciate your your asking. The book is published by Skyhorse. It's available pretty much everywhere that you buy books. Amazon has it. Any bookstore, Barnes & Noble, Barnes & Noble, et cetera, has it. The paperback version just came out last week. It's available on audiobook, both DVD and uh, and MP3 download. It's certainly on Kindle as well. I appreciate your mentioning the book. Mostly, I appreciate your highlighting the situation and the good things that you're doing on this podcast. And, and uh, I'll be listening to your series, You Can Bet. Thank you, Bill. Thank you.
0: This episode was brought to you by the Ontic Center for Protective Intelligence. Learn more at ontic.ai slash center. Again, that's ontic.ai slash center. It was produced by AJ McKeon. Our music is a track called Monte Verde Ride and was written by Brian Bristow and performed by Smokin' Novas. Check them out on Spotify. Please remember to rate and review our podcast on iTunes and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you have questions, we'd love to hear them. You can reach us at podcast at ontic.ai or visit ontic.ai slash center for more information.